Hey, this is Joe, one member of the Rewinders. This time, not so much rewinding as far as we normally go. This time, we're only rewinding a few weeks for Altered Carbon. If you look at our Facebook page, you'll see that I've done little tiny mini, uh, like one sentence to three sentence reviews of each episode. This will be a more encompassing talk about the show in general. I came off of watching Blade Runner for a regular review with Lee and heard about this show being a Blade Runner-esque kind of show. So I made a point of watching it. It's not exactly a Blade Runner-esque show, but they kind of made it feel like one in the visuals. But storytelling-wise, not so much. And anything outside of visuals for the, the city, the inner city part, I don't think resembles Blade Runner all that much. Overall, what was, I guess, the point of the show? What they were saying in this show was that um, life having a finite end kind of keeps our civilization in check. And without death, a minority of humanity will amass the majority of power and consolidate it. Then the, the, those same people would segregate themselves and eventually lose the basic meaning of being human because, eh, you don't die. You got all the wealth. You got all the power you're not feeling like you're human so much anymore because those humans just scuttle around on the surface. This whole thing is presented with kind of a class warfare model in the show, and it hits you in the face pretty hard with it. And it's like, you see what we're saying? See what we're saying? And it's like, yeah, show. I see what you're saying. Calm down. And in the show, uh, there's a, a poor middle class and a rich... But then there's also uh, this untouchable class that no matter what they do, they can influence or buy their way out of it. And because of that, their morals basically just kind of disappear with time. And, and when I say time, I mean they're living for hundreds of years. Our quick and messy little lives are so small to them. They build their homes up here so that the clutter of our existence is out of their sight. So, how do these people live for hundreds of years? Because that would be the first question. We're all human. That's not how we're designed. This comes about with a technology in the show called uh, Stacks. It's a device that seems to be implanted in the base of your neck, and it, I think they said, uses alien metal or technology to basic function. Um, what it does is store a backup of your consciousness, and this can move, be moved between anyone, anywhere. And this is where things kind of get gray and weird, and you need to suspend your disbelief a little bit because they say it, and then they just let it go. They just let it happen. So it's like, well, what happens when... You upload your stack to another, well, in this case, they're called sleeves, um, another sleeve, and you leave your sleeve behind. It just sits there. Does the brain 
suddenly become empty and sit in a vegetative state? Uh, I don't know. It's not really touched on. I guess we'll see if there's a second season, maybe. So, uh, like I said, sleeves are basically the redefined term for your body. Since a person can now vastly outlive their original body, it's considered more of a tool for the most part for anyone who lives beyond a single lifespan. Since people no longer fully identify with their body because they can swap it out so much or all the time, you know, day to day, uh, the world has even dropped and replaced the term uh, body. I don't think I ever heard anyone outside of a few people refer to their body as a body. They refer to it as just a sleeve. I believe the term comes in because you can slide in and out of any one of these sleeves, like your arm can slip in and out of any shirt sleeve. So it makes sense. Um, You're still the same person, no matter what shirt you wear. So it's the same model of you're still the same person, no matter what body you're in. Eh? Of course, since this is happening, sleeves are also now a commodity in this world. So you can buy and sell and rent sleeves. 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 Uh, It's also shown that DNA can be used to clone uh, copies of your own sleeve, or you can, you know, get whatever sleeve you want if you're done with your own body. Get a fancier body, but that's more pricey. Uh, and it also seems that younger bodies are also a high ticket commodity as well. Uh, although it's not explicitly told, it's alluded to very early in the show. But not everyone is down with being re-sleeved. Now, these people are considered uh, a term called coded, I believe. And these are the people that, for religious reasons, do not agree with this technology. Uh, The church, mainly shown as what I believe as being Catholic in this show, was very staunch that its congregation not take part in being what's called spun up after they die. Uh, This has led to a group of the public that are specially noted for religious purposes never to be brought back up again. So their stack, since it's mandatory to have these things, uh, their stack is then stored away and uh, marked that it's not to be brought back. But they still have them and they're still out there, I believe. I believe that's correct. I believe what I've just said is correct. Uh, Maybe it's not. But that's what I was the feeling I was left with. So, and on top of it, the church is marked being brought back, basically brought back to life with this technology as a sin after death. And if you would do so, you ruin your immortal soul and will never be allowed in heaven. Even though they they make this huge, you know, like, oh, you're forever tainted if you do this and God will not like you anymore. Even though they, they present it with that kind of harshness, the, the show itself does not present these people poorly. It basically displays these people and their beliefs, but doesn't really put them down for it. Now, there is a character that does criticize uh, their viewpoint, but the people who are coded to not be spun back up 
have very nice little, uh, I wouldn't call them monologues, but they're little responses that are close to monologues that get their point across. And, you know, you, you feel like, yeah, okay, you've thought it out. You, that that's what you want. That's what you want. That's cool. Then again, you also have the people who believe being brought back is a sin. And then they go and they paint skulls on their faces and protest and, and yell at people that they're, gonna be burning hell and you know well takes all kinds i guess so how does this all fit into the world i guess we talked a little bit about some of the people but how does how does the world in this show so the tv show mainly happens on earth and i think it's san francisco then you have the smaller parts of the show that happen on what are called the colonies off-world. Not much is really explained about the off-world colonies, but stacks were a big part in the ability to get these colonies at all. So I'm going to think maybe this is more explained in the books. But for the sake of a 10-episode season, I guess they kind of dropped it since it's not the main point of what they were trying to say at this, this time, I guess. They used the stacks, and they got there, wherever these colonies were. So Earth looks kind of, uh, Earth. when I say Earth, San Francisco, looks like, you know, a neon, never-ending city that feeds into the cyberpunk genre, and it kind of harkens back to Blade Runner, but it's only superficial, really. The colonies are more like what you would have seen in a TV show like Firefly, uh, where these worlds are, some of them have some technology, but there's also a lot of frontier kind of stuff going on. Where and, and you know, so the government has these nice facilities, but the regular people, you know, they may live more like we would think uh, historically speaking, like on ranches or farms and stuff like that. Not so much like what you would see on Earth. And I think that this portion of the the world is more interesting out in the colonies and stuff like that, where the envoy are established. Who are the envoy? Well, every futuristic show needs a rebellion of sorts. Unless we're talking old school Star Trek, then maybe not. But I'm probably wrong about that because I haven't watched a whole lot of Star Trek at all. So I'm probably wrong. There's probably are tons of rebellions in classic Star Trek, but you know, whatever. Like Star Wars is a rebellion. That's you know, that's the thing. Anyway, the envoy are the pushback against what we'll call the man, and they hide out and constantly practice methods to thwart any possible. Uh, how would I say, not challenge they could face, but if they get caught, they learn how to fight back against torture. If they end up in a firefight, they learn all the tactics that the bad, they're, uh, not the bad guys, I guess we'll call them, use against them. So basically they just train a lot to fight back against the man and they live like hippies in a commune. So these are kind of being displayed as being the the people that you... Oh yeah, these got to be the good guys. These have to be the good guys. And oh yeah, those 
those other guys that they fight, they, they wear scary masks and stuff like that. Those are the bad guys. Those are the bad guys. When they, when they train, um, one of their basic things that they train is that make your enemy think you are weak and use that to your advantage. But they also seem to, at some points, kind of show that they have these almost telepathic powers in ways. But at the same time, the characters are like, yeah, no, that's not magic or anything like that. Come on, anyone can do this. But the way that they show it, it's it looks like, you know, they could belong in the X-Men or something at some points. Or at least one of the characters they show. So the Envoy mostly struggle against uh, the Colonial Tactical Assault Corps, or CTAC. And they are part of the Protectorate. So in this world, the UN has become the Protectorate, and their army basically is CTAC. CTAC kind of busts in in these video game-esque helmets that look like spider masks. You've seen them in stealth games over the past 10 years and stuff like that. They, they don't really seem to make much sense how they work, but whatever. They look interesting. So they have these helmets and body armor, and they swoop in and blow stuff up and blow people up. And it seems like they have very little oversight or ethics involved in what they do. And it makes a good bad guy. I mean, it's easy. They're, they wear black. They have red lights in their mask. They shoot stuff up. They seem like they don't care. They seem unsupervised and using that to their advantage to capture people that they need to capture by any means possible, meaning murdering tons of people along the way. And then they also tell you about how underhanded they you know, frame people and stuff like that. So they basically jump between sleeves across the colonies to be the police force, I guess, against uprisings. And the Envoy are an uprising. So these two clash. I also, with this explanation, you know, the Protectorate kind of comes off as an American conservative conspiracy version of the UN. So, well, that's very futuristic. Why not? So at this point, everything's a little bit basic. You know, we got a good idea of what's going on in the world, and we have a good staple. We have a, a sort of bad guy group that's the man, that's the government, that's the enforcer. We we kind of have a hippie good guy group that's the seemingly almost magical in how they operate uh, rebellion. And we are set in a futuristic world with off-planet colonies, and the world on Earth is all, for lack of a better term, Blade Runner-y. And anyone can live forever with this technology called stacks. Okay, so we got a good base. We got a good base. So what are we going to do with this in 10 episodes? How is this going to go? So next up is we got to have some characters in this world. So our main character in the show is Takeshi Kovach. What? Sea Territorians. 12. Lethal loads. Are you see through the walls now? Three seconds or less. Move. And it's a mixture between, uh, I think it was Japanese and Slavic. However that worked out. So there are two versions of Takeshi, and I'll call the current version and the old or historical version, they're 250 years apart. And now there are leagues of differences between the two, 
And the first big difference is the actor. We start with the historical Takeshi, played by Will Yoon Lee, who pounds out an opening action sequence that feels like it's setting the stage for a certain kind of show. I I like it. Unluckily, that staging that this opening sequence sets up is kind of ripped away, and we're basically told, yeah, you know what you just watched? Forget about it. That was 250 years ago. We're going to be in the modern now, and we're going to have the modern Takeshi now. And this is played by Joel Kinnaman. I think Will provides a more deeper emotional Takeshi, while Joel provides a brooding and uncaring version of the guy. Joel's modern Takeshi supposedly changes as Takeshi connects with what is called his new pack, but he's also playing up that he doesn't care at all about any of them ever. So we as a viewer don't really take the journey with him because he barely shows it to us at all. We just see him going, yeah, you think I care about you? I don't. Shut up. Leave me alone. Now, Will's Takeshi struggles with the loss of his family and the hope of coming and joining another group who could be a family for him. Over the episodes that we see with him, we can kind of experience that because he displays it to us. And we can take that journey with him as a viewer. Will is allowed to do more with his character. And as an audience member, I find myself more drawn to him as Takeshi than Joel. Other people may like the the modern tough guy attitude of modern Takeshi who beats the hell out of everyone and everything because he's barely accountable to anyone. He's more of a classic 80s action hero. He's super buff and he's manly. He's not expressive. He's full of denial. He's goal-driven to a single goal and pretty non-dynamic. So you got your pick of the which version you'd like. Another character in this world that sets up pretty quick is Kristen Ortega. You're not a driver, are you? I said I work security. I didn't say for who. So this hasn't been a conversation, it's been an interrogation. Last chance. Just give me a name. Takeshi Kovacs. She's your brash cop who bends the rules to put criminals behind bars. She has her hands tied by the system, and she's trying to prove it. She's our first example of the multiculturalness of this future that we're being given, where everyone speaks English, but almost everyone speaks another language as well. And everyone understands each other, no matter what language they're speaking. So we must know, public education has gotten really better in the future. Good job, future San Francisco, for teaching your kids multiple languages. Things are looking up. Anyway, so Kristen Ortega is played by Marta Higuereta. She does well with the character she's given, but her character doesn't change from the beginning to the end of the show. I mean, in a meaningful way. What she does is she has her anger directed at certain people at the beginning of the series, and by the end of the series, she's directing her anger at other people. So her character journey is actually (laughs) completed due to very little of what she does in her hard work throughout this series and what she's telling you she's already done. Very little of this 
influences her story arc coming to an end. But Takeshi comes in, and in the matter of ten episodes, which seems like maybe a week, he completes her storyline. Good job. Gotta get the man in there to do the dirty work for the hard-boiled cops that can't finish their own storylines. One thing I liked about her is that her family provides insights into the whole church influence, especially into the idea of uh, being spun back up or re-sleeving. And they do that in a, I would think, a very personal and relatable way. It's not very future-y when she talks to her mom, who is uh, coded, and uh, Kristen is not. So we see uh, this Ortega fight with her mother over what she considers this great opportunity to have people be spun back up to testify against their murderers. And this is a, shown to us early in, in the series and then basically forgotten about for eight-ninths of the series and then brought back up again at the end again. But she frames it as kind of a miracle opportunity for people to be able to do this. And, you know, once they get spun back up, they find out who did the murder. Okay, great. Uh, we can... Put you know when you go to sleep, we'll I guess put you back down again. I, I don't know, depending on what they want, I guess. But her mother is very steadfast in her beliefs, and is like, no, that is wrong. The church says it's a sin. I am not about this. I feel this way, and she she says her piece very well, and it's respectable. But unlike Kristen's mom, Kristen's mother's mother is. Not that way at all. And Abuela is one of my favorite characters from this show. Not my favorite, but one of my favorite. And uh, it's it happens during... Uh, it introduces that during the Day of the Dead in this world, people will rent sleeves and put their deceased loved ones in these rented sleeves for the day so that they can have reunion, uh, they can have parties, they can reminisce together for the full day. And then they go and return the sleeve and their family member gets, I guess, stored, their stack stored again until next year or anything. And I absolutely love the episode where Abuela comes back for the Day of the Dead. Hopefully I'm not giving away too much for everybody. Anyway, the actor Matt Bedell is part of this and good job. I love the performance you gave for that episode. I'm not really going to explain it because it's too good, and I already gave away too much about the episode already, but that guy makes makes the episode all the much better. And another character? It's not just one. This is a whole set of characters. We have the Bancrofts, who are what are considered meths. And um, I'll just toss in just the idea of meths in general in this situation, because I'm not going to talk about each individual Bancroft character. We'll just talk about them as a whole. Now, these characters are interesting because of how their lives are revealed. But as persons, they don't really make a journey in the story. The story kind of just happens to them, and they get to view it. They are third-tier characters, I would say, and given a lot more screen time than they are actually developed or anything. They're like, they're like moving and talking prop pieces, I guess. And it's not their fault. There, there's just too many 
characters to develop every single one of them. So you have a lot of characters in this show that just go undeveloped. So their reveal is their journey, and theirs are a reveal of how living for over 300 years affects your morals, your judgments, your decisions in life. Uh, oh, so let, let's, let's explain that these are, um, when they're called meths. So it's not like they're doing meth, but uh, it's an, a reference to, uh, in the days of Methuselah, People live 900-some-odd years long. And these characters have been living for... Like, the, the Bancrofts have been living for over 300 years. So we get to see how living for over 300 years affects their morals, their judgments, and decisions in life. And leads us to a statement by uh, Lawrence Bancroft, where he basically says, We are the gods. Because in this world, it's reflected back at them that they are they live in palaces in the sky they're separate from the lower people down below they come down and do charitable acts they're really just showmanship but it makes them look like these beings that come down and do these wonderful things for people and then disappear back into the clouds again they become a manifestation of the classical image of Greek and Roman gods that they live up on these mountains and they come down and do these things and they go back up and, you know, they affect the world because they are the gods. It's kind of that kind of idea. But these people only represent such a sliver, small part of humanity, but they end up having all this influence class warfare again so we got that then we have my favorite character poe that's this of your microwave misfit apologies he's really only a minor character and he's played by chris connor but even though he's a minor character he's on a journey and his character has dimension and is developed more than so many other characters in this show. It's like, this guy is just an AI that runs a theme hotel. And he interacts with other AIs that run their own establishments. And when he does that, you can see that there's an obvious difference between them. I mean, the others are only trying to find a way to make a buck off of people. While Poe actually wants to know them, to understand them. I'm going to also think he probably wants to be a human, but it's never said. I don't know. You know, it feels like a whole Pinocchio kind of thing, maybe. And he's also kind of the humor of the show, which is fine because they do such delicate work with the humor and place it in proper places that he doesn't feel like this blunt object. He's not a protocol droid saying dumb things in scenes all the time. He just says things, does things, and it's good. It's good interjection of humor here and there. Bas this is basically after one episode, you get all these characters. The problem with these characters is that they don't really have a background or have motivation. Or if they do, it's just this one thing. The show displays them in the thinnest way possible. Because I think it just has to scream through all this stuff. And the hope is, I believe, that they come back later and fill it in as they're telling story, you know, other little mini-stories through the way or through different situations. Along with that, it 
it just feels like the story happens to a lot of characters and they don't cause the story to happen or shape it in meaningful ways. The characters who shape the story for almost 95% of the time is basically just Takeshi Kovach. With so many named characters revolving around Takeshi Kovach, it's a little disappointing that he's only the real main driver of the story and no one else named in multiple episodes pushes the story forward like he does. So, let's talk about the story. Okay, so if I'm going to sum up the story as fast as possible, I'm going to say the main story is boring. I did not care about the murder of some rich guy. And the show barely realizes that it doesn't care much about the murder either. But for some reason, we all have to slog through it. I mean, it could be interesting, but it's not. And I think that it's partly Takeshi's fault because he has such a laissez-faire attitude about everything, so uncaring, that it kind of transfers to you as a viewer. And you kind of start thinking, yeah, why should I care about this dope either? He's still there. He's fine. Screw it. What else does this world have to offer? And then Takeshi promptly takes us on a short mini-tour of the future Bay Area. But even that tour is so small and tries to use neon, boobs, and violence to convince us that this is all cool and interesting. But what it is really saying is, I know you don't care about that guy who got murdered, but look at this! Look at this! Hey, drugs and guns! Hey, titties! And it it's just like pandering to horny young dudes who love action and objectifying women. And it, it just makes you go, eh. Unless that's your thing, then I guess you'd be interested. But if you stick around long enough, you get through that whole crappy, gotta get people hooked with the most basic visceral things that people want to see. I guess, that they start actually telling a backstory to everything. And that is far more interesting than the murder mystery that we have going on. We learn about Takeshi as a child. We learn about Takeshi as uh, a SeaTac officer. We learn about Envoy Takeshi and how he trans- transitions between them all. And that's more interesting than the murder. Now, if you also noticed... Everything revolved around Takeshi. So once again, even though we have an interesting backstory, it only involves Takeshi for the most part. And it is a compelling story. And for the most part, it's all condensed into episode 7, which is the best episode. And then lunges forward with episodes with cliffhangers for episodes 8 and 9, pushing the story forward and then stalls out on 10, which has good moments, but... For a final episode, it feels like an epilogue in its pacing. Now, I'm not saying what's happening in these because, stick with it, at least interesting stuff happens. And there are moments where you're just like, yeah, yeah, killing that person. I'm not a violent man by any means, but yeah, that that was okay for me. For this story to have done that to that person, yeah, I'm okay with that. 
Now, I had mentioned that this show uses boobish, uh, dirty pillows and stuff to hook young males to watch this show. I'm pretty sure that was the target audience here. But I also saw an article that talked about, I guess, people were critical over the nudity in this show, which we live in a nation of prudes. I get it. So from a storytelling angle, I understand the point with the nudity because people have shed their bodies over and over again bodies are not emotionally attached to the person anymore they're just as they call them sleeves you just put them on for a time being and hey does this sleeve look good hey yeah i should show it off or i don't you know you become detached from the physicalness of your body now that's the storyteller way i see this but i also understand that this is also a decision made to make people watch because ho ho there's naked ladies in the show now there's not just naked ladies though there are naked dudes but the ratio from wang to pillow uh, we see not so many dongs in the way that we see so many breasts I'd say there's probably about one dick per ten fully naked ladies in this show. And I'm not saying that uh, I wanted to see more dick in this show, but equal opportunity. Come on. If this is truly about storytelling, and it's truly about the fact that people aren't connected to their bodies, they treat them as sleeves, it should be more equal across the board, because people would feel that way across the board. But that's not how it's shown, and it's probably due to this typical women being expected to be naked more than men in Hollywood. And it makes you sigh a little bit when you think of it that way. Even with those nudie ladies and men, is this show really worth your time? Now at the end of the day, I honestly wouldn't care if there's a season two to this show just wasn't wowed by it like I thought it had the potential. It's good. It's not great. So if you're looking for a short 10-episode series, each episode I think is like 45 minutes with futuristic stuff, a bit of mystery, I guess you could say some detective work. It's got twists. It's got action. I mean, you can give this a look. But I wouldn't bank your hopes on this show basically whisking you off with its awesome story that compels you to binge watch every episode. There is far more spectacle than depth when it comes to this show. So how does it work episode to episode? Well, if one ends on a good cliffhanger, be prepared for mediocrity to follow in the next episode. If you have a good episode you're going to have an episode that depends on something basic to get you through the next one. I have moments where I really enjoyed the show. Moments. And I do have a favorite episode. Like I said, that would be episode 7. And that episode's 
about 95% in the past, not about the murder. It fills us in about where, how the characters got to where they are at that point. And by those characters, I basically mean Takeshi. But, I mean, the show knows where it's deficient. And it takes those deficiencies and shoves action and nudity into those spots, trying to, you know, keep you watching when there's a lull in the series. So it, I can't blame it for doing that. It it knows that those episodes aren't that great. So, you know, shove something easy in there that's going to keep the target demograph interested. So, without spoiling too much, that's a talk-through about Altered Carbon. Hope it was interesting to say the least. I felt it was okay to do this because when I looked at the what's popular on Netflix, this no longer was on that list. So I figured it is done and moved on. And if you had watched it, you watched it. And if you hadn't, you probably aren't watching it now because there's other things out. So we've even been pitched another Netflix original show that's supposed to be a Blade Runner esque because apparently that's what. Netflix producers decided they wanted to do and that one's mute now I haven't heard any good things really about it so we'll see how it goes but this was a short talk through about Altered Carbon if you want to get in touch with us there's the email options there's the Facebook options I think there's Twitter options or you can just go straight to SoundCloud but one thing you could do that we'd really enjoy is that if you could tell your friends, your families, your co-workers, your militia groups, your political rivals about our show, especially if they like movies or TV shows, just let them know, hey, there's this show that's unassuming, so listen to it. Listen to it. Listen to it. I apologize for not singing in falsetto voice this whole time. I let you down. I'm going to go seriously consider what I'm doing with my life. See you!